0: January 8, 2012, Lecture Discussion number 51 on the Book of Romans. And here we are buried in snow. I don't know how much snow we have gotten in the last uh, few weeks, but uh, there's four or five feet in my yard, maybe more. I saw Córdova had uh, 30 feet, and I saw Valdez had almost 50 feet. I grew up in Whittier where it was common to have 50 to 60 feet every year. Where we got to school in a tunnel that 's a, a long, old story that no one wants to know, but the winter solstice has passed us that 's good and uh, and uh, the you know that 's good and new year 's is is gone now, and Michael miss and Gabriel miss and Christmas and whichever you 've decided to the birth or the incarnation has gone away for another time, and feast day of trumpets, and feast day of tabernacles, and the holy thing come into darkness. All of that's behind us for another year, and here we are 2012, which is scary for me to be 2012. Uh, Do I think the Mayans are right? Jack was asking. Do about the Mayans. Do I think the Mayans are right? No, I don't. Do I hope they're right? Oh, yeah, baby. I'm hoping. We're hoping that they're right. That would really be cool, and I'd be thrilled for them if they happened to get it. Uh, they're close. I think they're very close. I think they're off by about two, I don't know, 15 years tops. Uh, but uh, what is there now, anyway? There's, uh, what, 351 shopping days to Christmas? Because, uh, uh, you know, 2012 is a leap year in it. You got, it could be 352. Somebody can devote the lecture time to figuring that out. In any event, we're now trudging through the dark days of January and February. And that, they're tough. They always are uh, at this time of year because there's nothing really to look forward to. And, um, and they're dark and cold and miserable. And we're going to need constant encouragement and cheering up to make it to March. And to that end, I wanted to share a cheerful little note that we received from Sharon in Texas. And you might know Sharon in Texas if you've come here for a while. And, and um, um, she is delightfully sarcastic. So let me read Sharon from Texas. And uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, we have uh, an Internet uh, audience that, let me think, it's, it might be a hundred times bigger than our, our audience here. So, again, we don't let them vote. But here is Sharon from Texas. She sent us, thanks, thoughtful, helpful, always there, nice, kind-hearted, and supportive. She writes this, please, and it is underlined, don't use the money, because enclosed was a a gift, and that was really great. Thank you, Sharon. Please don't use the money for medicine. (laughs) Maybe they make a Diet Coke Coke patch. (laughs) Love the pyrotechnics in your 1211 sermon. For those of you who were here for that, you remember we had the power going out, the wind blowing 115 miles an hour, pretty brutal. Love the pyrotechnics in the 1211 sermon. You sound like brave and hearty people to venture out in that weather. You should see it today, uh, Sharon, and better. Sorry for the writing, I broke my right ring finger. Yeah, you know, Sharon, you should not be punching the pastor of your church. Or Use the left hand. Most guys can't dodge a left jab. Anyway, thanks for your continuing education lectures. I am always so excited to get the email that a new one has been posted. How is the website coming along? And to that end, of, um, we, are, we are getting closer. I, I think um, um, we're within a couple of months. We did have somebody come and um, take pictures of all of you. I don't know if you noticed him, but he was from the website committee, the gentleman that was taking pictures at the at the competition. And so Sharon will be able to see all of you in your depravity, and uh, so will the rest. So that's coming really fast. I hope. Are you learning to type and send emails? She asked. No, I am not. Uh, and I never will. I'm stubborn that way. Big Texas hugs to all of you there in Alaska, Sharon. So um, just wanted to share that. Thank you, Sharon. And we're grateful you're out there, and it's fun to hear from you. Uh, on another note, though, I'm very discouraged because Lori was listening to the radio and she heard a GCI commercial. anybody hear this? I'm suing because GCI, the cable internet provider, etc. They had a commercial. They have a commercial that says. Sorry. Not really. Fake sorry. Now, they obviously have stolen that from me. And there might be money in it for us. Yes, we should go after us. Obviously, uh, GCI, you're listening, and I know you're listening, and you're stealing. The least you can do is send me something. Pizza. I would like pizza. Huh? Fried chicken. Yes, right. We should get something for that. They're really proud of that commercial, and and, uh, again, thievery should be, uh, uh, I mean, I can't do anything about it, but we all know the truth, don't we? Uh, I'm waiting. Pretty soon the next GCI commercial will have the most obvious of the obvious questions. And then, were you weird before you took GCI, or did GCI make you weird? In which case, we're attacking. <laughs> they, they, they do that. Anyway. Anyway, just listen for that. It'll make you laugh. Okay, since our last regular class was Lecture 50, and that was back on December 19th, for those of you who follow on the Internet and you might wonder why there's a void, there was a Christmas lecture in there. I don't know if it's gotten through and if it'll make the Internet or not. Um, Or I I should say a, a December 24th lecture. It was my usual uplifting December 24th lecture on Ecclesiastes. You might find it interesting. Very warm and fuzzy. Okay, not. But it isn't really fair now to these Anchorage folks who actually attend to remember all the way back to December 19th and they persevere through the darkness and the snow and there's lots of snow and there's cold. Uh, Jack just said it was the highest it got in Fairbanks was 38 below. We're all grateful we didn't li- we don't live there. Even though I worked there for a while. As short a period of time as I could endure. Uh, riding locomotives into Fairbanks, freezing up at 60 below. That's another bad story nobody wants to know about. But uh, everybody has to come here just to get the free food. So it's only just to reward all of that by providing a brief uh, retrospective in order to jar everyone back to whence we came. A remembrancer. Did you know that remembrancer is a word? I'm playing a lot of Scrabble on the Internet now with Lori's friends. And they don't want to play me anymore. It's it's too. I have to quit playing Scrabble. I, that's really too bad. And it isn't. The, 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 you know, there is a strategy to Scrabble, as you might be aware. Do you ever watch the Scrabble uh, Olympics on TV? It's fascinating. You think it's just a game. It's not. It's a, it's a, it's very complex. And so there are certain things you should know if you're going to play Scrabble. See me later. There's strategies so that you can demoralize your relatives. But a remembrancer is what we're doing today. So all of you on the internet, I wish for you to be indulgent whilst I retreat a bit. Okay. Where are we? Where were we on December 19th? Anybody remember anybody? Anybody have even the slightest idea where we left off? Let the record show, no one knows. <laughs> I had a, actually I had a thing here I was going to identify. Uh, but uh, nobody, I'll write nobody. Remember, that's, uh, it, we're in Romans 4. Uh, Paul's great argument for salvation by grace through belief in the blood. Okay? In the person that is Jesus the Christ. You get used to saying Jesus the Christ instead of Jesus Christ. You'll be amazed at how that affects people. Why are you calling him Jesus the Christ? Because he is salvation the anointed. That's what that means. Anyway, Paul is contrasting, and he has this great argument, if you remember, Abraham-David circumcision. That's his argument. If you have, if you don't know what I mean, go ahead and, and go back and find those lectures, and Abraham-David circumcision will make sense to you. It's not an accident that he went in that order in Romans 4. But he has, he is making this incredible thing, uh, this contrast. That believing God or believing Christ is contrasted, or believing the Christ, if you will, Uh, believing Jesus the Christ is that contrasted with him who works. And so those are the two uh, sides, if you will. Believing God, and he says so, Abraham believed God. And it compared against him who works, whose wages are counted as debt. So believing God or believed God versus him who works. And there's the two uh, sides again. And it's readily apparent, isn't it? It's inferred. I hope you see that. The Abraham believed God's side or the believing Christ's side versus him who works. What is inferred by that? This is the believing God's side. This must be the what side The not believing God. I could write not believing God over here. Him who works, who thinks that you can get salvation by some kind of works based system is not believing God. This is the not believing Son. Does not believe. Consider that for a moment where you are now. That him who works side. I would caution everybody to flee from the does not believe God place. Duh, huh? That should be obvious. But sadly, many, many, many churches, the overwhelming majority of churches, are on the him who works not believing God side when it comes to their doctrine of salvation. That is uh, astonishing, except you should know if the Mayans are right, it is absolutely the predicted case. Again, I don't think they're right. I just hope they are. Many rush to the Him Who Works uh, churches. And what Paul also calls it, uh, he calls it, he calls this side the sound doctrine side. And what is inferred by that? Yeah, over here he calls it the unsound doctrine. It's also called... The strange doctrine. So, if you have some kind of works-based idea or concept in your salvation doctrine, that's the side you're on. The not believing God, the strange, or the unsound. <coughs> Excuse me. As an aside, the dist- it's also called destructive heresies by Peter. Second Peter two. All of these things have the same characteristics, which makes them really quickly to easy to identify. If you go into a church and you wonder, is it a works-based church? Does it have a works-based theology? Does it have a works-based idea with regard to salvation? Or is it in the believing uh, God or the believing Christ or the sound doctrine? Which one is it you want to know? Well, there's characteristics of the of the uh, destructive heresy side. They all are the same. I would make, that would make sense, right? They would all be the same. Easy to identify them, the unsound, unbiblical doctrines. They focus on something. They all do it, every single one. There is none that doesn't. This side, the Him Who Works side, those organizations, those supposed churches, and those sects, if you will, S-E-C-T-S they all do this they all bind people they not only bind them they hunt them down they focus on binding people they shackle people to people or they shackle people to organizations and you know you've gone through airports and seen them they've knocked on your door Great emphasis is placed by those who are on the Him who works positions, on control and obedience to the edicts of men. And the authority of Scripture is cast aside for the authority of the organization or the tradition of the organization. And failure to maintain membership, failure to come, failure to attend, failure to do what else? The tithe, donate, failure to contribute causes what? In the Him who works on. Causes you to lose your salvation. So declare their human tribunals, their supposed teachers. And very wealthy are these organizations. They get really rich, and they are really rich, and they say they're rich, and they say they have need of nothing. What's that? Yeah, that is Revelation, isn't it? 3, 3.16. But the truth is they are Christ-less. Christ-less. Christ is not in them. They, instead of being rich, are wretched and they're miserable and they're poor and they're blind and they're naked. They do not believe God. They are the him who works, whose wages are debt. Not counted as righteousness, but counted as debt. And Christ says something very profound. Uh, well, everything Christ says very profound. But something very solemn would be a better better word. He lists them once. He calls them the Nicolaitans. And if you study, and you know where that term is in, in uh, Revelation, uh, uh, he says, Revelation 2.6, I think, look it up, I might be wrong. I hate the Nicolaitans, that's what Jesus the Christ says. I hate the Nicolaitans. Now don't anthropomorphize, don't put your idea of hate into him. Why does he hate the Nicolaitans? What do they do? Well, they're a works-based system, and what does that works-based system do? It's Pharisaical. Read your book, uh, read Matthew, and see what he has to say about the Pharisees. Woe be the Pharisees! Hunt people down and make them a. Greater son of perdition, or sorry, greater son of hell than themselves. I shouldn't say perdition ever, that's a sign to Judas and the Antichrist alone. But the Nicolaitans were, called, were conquerors of people. Be very afraid when the judge of all things says this, they conquered people, they bound them to themselves, and they made them sons of hell. That's why he hates them, because he loves the people they have grabbed and ensnared. They're ensnarers, they're controllers. They perverted the true doctrine of grace and they replaced it with a pharisaical works-based, human-based, human, him who works. Not believing God. Unsound, strange, destructive, heresy. That's what they replaced it with. And their leaders, by the way, at the Nicolaitans, they were a historical, historical group, but they became hedonists. What's a hedonist? Yeah, a hedonist is somebody who says uh, essentially that there is a cessation of existence upon death, and so the only thing to do is focus on myself. Cessation of existence philosophy, uh, monism, always leads to hedonism. In fact, the, the Huxleys who essentially founded evolutionary philosophy or monistic philosophy, cessation of existence philosophy, or at least popularized it, uh, the Huxleys uh, were extraordinary hedonists. Aldous being the worst, I would guess. Uh, there was a contest, a fight between all of them. But anyway, the Nicolaitans, their followers became chattel, which is uh, property. They made property out of their uh, followers. That is what the him who works side always does. They see the, their followers as property. Okay. How many of you are bound to Cliffside Community Chapel, where if you don't show up, you get a phone call, Bill shows up at your house and asks for money. How many besides Eric and Lindsay? <laughs> Eric and Lindsay are right, by the way. They, they are right. I'll have to revisit that. Uh, and Chris and Amanda are also bound. That's not such a bet. Never mind. I... <laughs> but seriously, you all know that we do everything we can to be the opposite of this. Everything. I give no one the impression that if you fail to attend Clipside Community Chapel, that you will lose your salvation. How how ridiculous! But that's common. It's very common. We're called to be the servants of Jesus Christ. Did you know that? Did you know that when uh, uh, when we're in heaven, that our job is to be His servant? He, did you think He was going to serve you? Is that what you thought? Do you want to be his servant? A lot of people don't. They think that's going to be a really bad job. They have no idea. But we are the property of Christ. He is the possessor of all things. He's called such in Genesis 14. We are the property of of Jesus the Christ, of him alone. Do not become the property of somebody else. Now, I understand slavery for many, many years was an incredible wickedness, and that is in great contrast, you see, to Scripture. You have a mark on you. You know that once you are saved, an invisible mark. That, by the way, gets into the tattoo things. I had a lady call me and, and asking me if it was okay to have uh, uh, Christian tattoos. I, I haven't called her back. Um, here's the Here's the case. You have an invisible mark on you, God's mark. Why would you want a visible one? Why would you want one that man sees? Now, I know in this culture today, uh, there's tattoos everywhere for all kinds of various reasons. But you should recognize the reason that he did not want the Israelites to have tattoos, Leviticus 19, I believe, was because of what it meant. It meant ownership, your own owned. By the way, the Antichrist will have what? He will have a mark also, won't he? And who will see it? Man will. So there's a difference between the mark of God, which he sees, that identifies you as his property, versus the mark of the Antichrist, which is seen by man and identifies you as the Antichrist property. So just be aware of that. Uh, uh, That's the issue. That's where you are. Do you value your invisible mark? That's ultimately where you're at. Do you value it? Are you are are you thrilled by it? Or do you want a mark that humanity can see? What's the answer for most people? They want the humanity can see mark, because that's how we are. Uh, That's just what we are. Doesn't mean anything. Do you lose your salvation because you have a tattoo? No. No. Somebody tells you you have. What do you got to worry about? Don't worry about this guy. Tell, look, I grew up at a time where if you smoked cigarettes, what were you? Unsaved. I mean, really, how many had that? All of us. I mean, okay, all of us that are my age are better. But that was the deal. And look, a lot of people smoked in those days, but it was a big deal. We have we have churches today that if you drink anything, any alcohol, is alcohol going to cost you your salvation? Wash I sure hope not for this congregation. I, I, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I am kidding. Kind of uh, kidding. That goes out on the Internet. And there's there's uh, those folks in South Africa amaze me. It's amazing what's happening down there. And I wish that one of you would send us a, a card in South Africa. We would be thrilled to get it. Anyway, beware of those who seek to control you, who want to make you property of human beings, where they have so much control of your life. I belong to a church that told people who married who and where they lived. Uh, I didn't last long there. You can imagine. What is, what is going on here? But churches do that. They seek to control that puts you over here in the not believing God, the unsound, the strange, the destructive, makes you a Nicolation. Be very careful you don't go there and, and be part of anything that has that kind of leaning. Anyway, that discussion led us to the five warnings of the book of Hebrews. That's where we are. Did anybody remember that? Good for you. You should have said something. You would have gone down into the, into the paper. I would have written your name. Because the Nicolations, And the pharisaical cults and sects, sects, I can't say it, I have an enlarged tongue. Sorry, Sharon, I need more medicine. Ah. They love so much to twist and garble and distort the five warnings of the book of Hebrews. First off, when you're reading the book of Hebrews, you need to know right off the bat, there's five warnings here. That's the purpose of it. If you're going through Hebrews and you're not finding the five warnings, then you're missing the context of it. But the, the Nicolaitans and the pharisaical cults, they love to garble, distort those five warnings. And, and for their singular purpose of gaining control of the weak, picking off those who have no wisdom, who have no armor. And those are the ones who will not study. They will not. I can't make anybody study. I try all the time. I do whatever I can. But I know some will not study. And they, they, they do not study. And they become easy victims. They're slaughtered little lambs. Mucus on the front, dingleberries on the back. That's what you become. And the irony is, is that the five warnings were written to to these uh, Hebrew Christians. Uh, to us, they were written to the Christians who don't know anything. And yet, those that very book, those very warnings, are used to enslave us, the weak. And hopefully you recall even uh, barely is good. I'll take barely. That the five warnings of the book of Hebrews have an underlying issue. Something that must be known in order to correctly understand why these five warnings were given. I haven't yet hammered it in. I'm going to do it up to now. But I'm going to do it now. I did mention it in passage. In passing. I hope you saw. Or you picked it up. As you know. Okay. Erase this part. You get the drift here. The believing God side and the not believing God side. And by the way, whenever one of these groups comes and knocks on my door, I ask them. I said, are you on the believing God or the not believing God side? Which side are you on? And of course, they always answer, we're on the believing God side. I said, oh, really? Well, let's go look. Oh, here. Here you are. You're the him who works side. You believe you have to accomplish something. You have to work. You're physically responsible. You're self-responsible for your salvation versus the believing God side. You're in the not believing God side. Wow, isn't that interesting? And That's what I get. That look. Absolute dead silence. Boom, lack, 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 lack. As you know, Matthew 12 is what? You know this. You have to know this. You should know this. Matthew 12 is a, that's right, it's a demar, demarcation line. Let the record show that Bill knew. Demarcation, is that a good Scrabble word? Absolutely. Okay. It's a demarcation. It's a line in the sand, if you will. It's a line that to be crossed. It is where, it is where in Scripture, the place, it is the place where the nation, the nation Let me repeat that. That sounded kind of Southern Baptist-y. The nation of Israel, when they had the Creator God physically before them. Creator God, the Lord God Almighty, the Creator of all things, has added humanity, and He is standing in front of the nation of Israel. So the nation of God is physically before the nation... I'm sorry, the Creator God is physically before the nation of Israel the Messiah King and the nation of Israel rejects him as Messiah on the basis that he is what? He is indwelt with Satan. That is what Happens at Matthew 12. And let me repeat that. Number one, the nation of Israel. Number two, creator God in the flesh. Number three, he's physically in front of them, physically present. He is rejected, number four, by the nation of Israel. And he is rejected, number five, on the basis that Jesus the Christ is evil, controlled, and empowered by Satan. That's what's happening. That is what? Matthew 12 is what? Those are the elements, those five are the elements of what? Something that you all know. It's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or the unpardonable sin. That is the definition of of the unpardonable sin or the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Let me repeat it. If you are going to say what is the definition of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? What is the definition of the unpardonable sin? It is in Matthew 12. It is a line in the sand. After this rejection of Him as Messiah occurred, He changed how He treated Israel. What did He do after that? Parables. Spoke to them in parables. But here's the definition. Got to have the nation of Israel. I have to have Creator God physically in the flesh right in front of them. I have to be, has to be physically present, and then he is rejected by the nation of Israel on the basis that he is controlled and empowered and indwelt by Satan. Okay, can you do that? No. You cannot commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You cannot commit the unpardonable sin. You are not the nation of Israel. Christ is not physically in front of you. Having added humanity, you did not reject him as Messiah King. You do not think that he has Satan indwelt in him. You cannot commit this. You have to be the nation of Israel to do it. And they did it. Okay, that is the context of the book of Hebrews. Did you know that? That's the context of the book of Hebrews, is the unpardonable sin or the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, whichever one you want. That's the definition, and I'm certain that you have heard another definition, all of you. You've heard the Nicolation or the pharisaical definition of the unpardonable sin. What is the unpardonable sin according to the Nicolation side of things? The him who works up. Do they tell you you can commit the unpardonable sin? All the time. Okay. Why would they tell you that? Don't they know this? A lot of them do. They'll tell you, you can commit the unpardonable sin. In fact, you just did. And the only way you're going to get your salvation back is what? That's right, baby. Cough up the buckies. We'll put in a word for you. We'll see if we can get you a new certificate. Okay, it's the pharisaical definition or the him who works, the not believing God definition of the unpardonable sin is devised to control the weak. Why do I keep pounding this in? I'll bring it up every couple of months. How? Why do I do it? They give you a, give you a handgun. Why do we hand out weapons in a Christmas party here? And get get you ready to fight. Because they have one that's devised to control the weak. One that requires you to remain bound to them. Or bound to the organization. And if you're not bound to them or bound to the organization, then what are you? Damned. Condemned. Try to leave. See what happens. Anyway, the unpardonable sin can only be committed by the nation of Israel, and it was committed by the nation of Israel at Matthew 12. That's what makes Matthew 12 so important. And the consequence to the nation of Israel was given by Christ at Matthew 24, 1 through 2. It is the first of the three questions. Uh, it's the, the first question, as you know, he answered second, and he answered the third question first, and the first question second, as I said, and the second question he answered third. You know all of that. You have to know all of that. If you don't, it's okay. Come and see me. I'll explain Matthew 24 to you. But this is a, this is where he tells his disciples that there is a consequences. Uh, sorry, a consequence for what happened at Matthew 12, when they rejected me on the basis that when that I had Satan inside of me, that Satan and I were the same. As he was, by the way, he entered Judas. What didn't he? Actually, there was somebody standing before the Pharisees that did have Satan inside of him. That was Judas. Very important to know that. That makes Judas an extraordinary figure. No one, as you've heard me say thousands of times, no one in the history of humanity has had Satan inside of him but Judas. Knowing that helps you understand the 666, which I have solved. Do you know that? Okay, I didn't solve it. But since GCI is stealing my stuff, I thought I might want to try. Uh, just before I went in for my, uh, my hernia operation, it occurred to me that I should put my 666 position on the internet just in case I didn't get through. Because, you know, there's always, always strange things that happen in anesthetics. You can't trust anybody in the medical profession ever. Unless they're in your own family and then you gotta be really careful with them. Their mom has to be there. While they put you under, because they'll, they'll, you never, know, you don't want to know what they're capable of. Anyway, I put that position on. If you want to know uh, what I think is the solution to the 666, um, it's very hard to find, but it is on sermon audio and other places uh, for those of you who want to know. But Judas is a big part of that because he was indwelt by Satan, makes it very important. Anyway. The five warnings of the book of Hebrews have as an undercurrent context, an undercurrent context, the judgment. There is a judgment for rejecting Christ when He stood before them, rejecting His Messiahship. There's a consequence. That judgment is what happens in Matthew 24. Okay? That's the undercurrent of the book of Hebrews. That's the undercurrent of the five warnings is the Matthew 12 national rejection of Christ. And he said that judgment, that consequence, is the destruction of something. What is it the destruction of? It's the destruction of the Jewish temple, which occurred in A.D. 70. And what else happened in A.D. 70 while that temple was destroyed by the Roman army, the General Titus? What happened? What happened to the people of Israel that lived in Jerusalem? When the Roman army came to destroy the temple, that is the consequence of what happened in Matthew 12. What happened to those people? They were slaughtered, every one of them, millions of them killed. And Christ told everybody, all his believers, those who believed Christ, those who believed God with respect to salvation, he told all of them, get out of there. Don't go there. That is the context, the undercurrent of what the five warnings in the book of Hebrews is. You have to read Hebrews knowing that Matthew 12, that demarcation line, that rejection, the consequence is what is causing those five warnings. The consequence is coming soon. Those people in the book of Hebrews are trying to do something. What is it they're trying to do? They've been living out in the woods. Are they, I like it. They don't like it. What do they want to do? They they're have they no longer part of Jewish society. They're isolated. They're ostracized. What do they want to do? They want to go back. And Paul's trying to do that. He's trying to stop them, the Holy Spirit. So be aware. Know the context. The immediate issue. The Apostle Paul is exhorting these Jewish Christians to stay put, to stay away from Jerusalem. Judgment is coming to the temple. The pharisaical system... The him who works system, that doctrine, the unsound doctrine that rejected Jesus the Christ as Messiah, God in the flesh as Messiah, that, that doctrine that rejected him, physical death is now coming to the city of Jerusalem and destruction is coming to that temple as a consequence of Matthew 12. Again, let me repeat that. Physical death, not spiritual death. And Paul is trying to keep his little Jewish platoon of soldiers I even gave you this image last week, or the last time, December 19th, I hope. He's trying to keep his little Jewish platoon from surrendering, from throwing their weapons down and going back into Jerusalem, where what's going to happen to them? They're all going to be killed, physical death. Why is that a bad thing? Are they believers? Yes. Are they going to be with Christ? Yes. Why is it a bad thing that they surrender and go back into Jerusalem and be slaughtered and their kids slaughtered? Well, one, they they didn't finish their race. They gave up the fight. Two, we lost soldiers. We need soldiers. Paul wanted his soldiers. He had good soldiers there. He had Christian Jews. He was really happy about that. And the Christian Jews... We're about to surrender. That is the context of the five warnings of the book of Hebrews. It has nothing to do with losing your salvation. Why, by the way, do I have to bring it up? Because the him who works will grab the book of Hebrews and twist it, distort it, and garble it into some way of trying to teach you that Hebrews says that you'll lose your salvation. And they do it all the time. They come here all the time. How many times do they come here? Once. Then they don't come back. How come? Because they can't deal with, with the facts, the truth. They can't argue. it. They don't know what they don't know. They come in here with some nonsense, and then they find out what the book of Hebrews is really about, and they just shut up. That's what the truth does. That's what you got to give your kids. That's what you got to know. Now, onward we go into the third warning of the book of Hebrews, just to show you what they do to it. So, here we go. Hebrews 5. Open your textbook, Hebrews 5. You can find it. It's towards the end. We'll start at verse 11 because it is my favorite verse in all of Hebrews. Verse 10, by the way, ends a uh, parenthesis, I'm sorry, a bracketing. You'll notice that all uh, Hebrews uh, 5 from, uh, I'm sorry, from 4, from 4.14 all the way to uh, 5.10, have a high priest context to them, or they're bookended by high priests. So everything that's inside of that, you have to have an understanding that everything inside of that has a Day of Atonement or a Yom Kippur uh, uh, context to it, uh, just as an aside. Anyway, we'll start in verse 11, my favorite verse. Of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become stupid. That's what it says. Verse 10, 510, or 511, sorry. Of whom we have much to say, and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. You're dumb. I can't explain Melchizedek to you. I'd like to. I'd like to explain the order of Melchizedek, but I can't do it. How come? Dumb. That's why. What he says. What's the obvious question? How did they become dumb? Anyway. For though by this time you ought to be teachers. You need. By this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again. Again. The first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. For he is a baby. But solid food belongs to those who are full age. That is, those who by reason, who can reason. Who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. What he means by that is the first principles. Leaving the discussion of the first principles of Christ. Let us go on to maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. Where are we again? Dead works. Him who dead works. Understanding the believing God and the him who dead works. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God. Believing God versus him who has dead works. There it is. Of the doctrine of baptisms. Actually, that's cleansings. Of laying on the hands. Not what you think. Not what goes on in the contemporary church. That isn't laying on of hands. Have God's definitions of things. Know what laying of the hands really is. Of resurrection of the dead. And of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible. For those who were once enlightened. Now you can recognize this verse. Let's read it again. For it is impossible. For those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Do you think that is a verse that tells you you can lose your salvation? Because if you do, you're in big trouble. And you do not understand the five warnings of the Book of Hebrews, or the context, or the believing God versus the Him who dead works, and you're in big trouble. And here come the Pharisaical Nicolaitan cults, pounding you over the head with this, and down you go. You can't even take one punch. Poof, you're out there with your baby bottle, and he's got a he's got a club. Okay, I'll stop there just for the sake of time. This, what I just read, goes on to 620 and we'll finish it next week. Okay, we won't finish it next week, but we'll get close. No, we won't get close. But we'll try. This is the warning against remaining immature. Remaining immature. Remaining a child. Lacking understanding. Having no wisdom. This is the third warning. In the book of Hebrews, of the five. So, it's a warning against being a child, having no wisdom, having no desire for wisdom. That, by the way, sums up the church today. There is no desire for wisdom in the church today. Uh, Just as Revelation 3 would have predicted. What's in the church today? What's the desire for? What's the church leadership desiring? Money. What is the congregation desiring? Feelings, stories, something to make them feel good. Nobody wants wisdom anymore. And this is the warning against that. Having no wisdom, having no desire for wisdom, being fooled into being satisfied with a life of tumult, despair and anxiety and frustration. You're a soldier, yes you are. When you're like this, but you're unable to shoot, you're unable to fight, you're useless, you can't feed yourself, you can't tie your shoes, you can't load your weapon. And if you do manage to get a loaded weapon, you shoot your own shoulders, soldiers. You usually shoot them in the back. And you'll run off in the wrong direction, you'll get lost, you can't march, you fall down, you whine. These are the weak, the defenseless, these are the babies. And they never make any effort to learn or grow or get older or age in any way or get stronger. Age is a good thing sometimes, most of the time. Or get strong. They like being a baby. They love being a baby. They want to stay a baby. And I ask, who wants such a life? Who wants to be the dumbest guy to walk into every room you enter? And sadly, this is the majority, not just in the church, but in our society at large. We have we were founded, by the way. Here's a little political stuff for you. We were found, founded as a country, uh, and the focus and the emphasis was on independence of individualities. In other words, each person was independent. Now we are focused on dependence. We have gone from independence to dependence. We've gone away from the independence of scripture to the dependence of Whatever philosophy you would like, it's essentially communism, ultimately, dependence is. Dependence is flourishing. Independence is vanishing in our society at large. If you are dependent, you will be controlled and beware of those who seek to keep you dependent and immature and weak. Okay, note a few things. The people who got this letter that he called dull of hearing, the people that got told they were dumb, they're Hebrew Christians, and they cannot understand the hard things they have become dull of hearing. And as I said, no better description could be said of the state of the contemporary, seeker-sensitive, fluffy-wuffy church today. And he has many things to say to them. They can't understand it. So he says, I'll forget it. I'm not even going to talk to you about Melchizedek. You're dull of hearing. You can't understand it. Not going to do it. And 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 he says, you ought to be teachers. But... They need to be taught again the beginning principles. They're in first grade. They're unable to eat solid food. And what are the first principles that need to be known so you can go on to maturity? He lists them, doesn't he? Dead works versus belief faith. There it is again. Same subject that we're in. Dead works versus belief faith. If you have a dead works problem, you're a what? What's he call you? A baby. If you think somehow that you can maintain, control, impact your salvation, that it is not a gift, it is not a belief-based salvation, if you think you're responsible, he calls you a baby here, doll of hearing, can't talk to you about Melchizedek, you still have a dead works problem. That's a first principle, that's the first principle. How's the church today doing with the first principle? Not so good. is it any wonder that we're struggling, that it's such a mess? Then the doctrine of cleansing is said next. He calls it doctrine of baptism, but it's the sevenfold cleansing provisions. Let me help you. It's the Day of Atonement. It's the sin offering. It's the trespass offering. It's the ashes of the red heifer. It's the cleansing of the leper. It's the lava. It's the golden plate. Those are the first principles. That's kindergarten. That's first grade. How you doing? Ashes of the red heifer essay due tomorrow. 150 pages or or more. How you do? Can you give me 150 pages on the ashes of the left of the red heifer? You talk to me about the man found dead in the field? No one could touch him. We're drawing lines from different cities See who's got the body. What that's about? Genesis 15, the red heifer. Those are the first principles. That's identification with sinner and sin. The, tra- the laying on of hands is transference. It's identification with sin. It's Yom Kippur. It's the two goats. It's the goat for Azazel, the goat for YHVH. It's the proclamation that Christ makes to the angels that are bound in Tartarus. It's the solution to sin, Matthew 4. That is the first principle. That's the laying on of hands. It's not what goes on today. It's not even close. It goes on today as a joke most of the time. It's silly. And then he goes into the resurrections. He says the resurrections. What's that? That's the order of the resurrections, the stages of the resurrections. How many, there's a first and a second resurrection. How many sequences or stages are there in the first resurrections? Do you know? There's five. How many resurrections you got? Well, some will say seven, some will say eight. We'll debate it. Do you know your seven or eight resurrections? That's the first principle. That's first grade. you got to know that in order to be what? Able to eat solid food. Talk about Melchizedek. Finally, the eternal judgment, the great white throne. That's what he says And the eternal judgment. Those all comprise the beginnings. Let me repeat it. Uh, dead works, faith towards God. That's grace versus works. The doctrine of the cleansing, sevenfold. The transference of sin to an innocent sacrifice. The goat for Azazel, Yom Kippur. And the great white throne judgment. Those are the baby doctrines. That's the baby stuff. That's Gerber's. Don't need a meat slicer for Gerber's. How many do you know? How many could you teach? The obvious question, why don't you know? Is it any wonder that the church of today is in such disarray? We will stop at verse 4 once again. A great, amazing verse. I didn't do it justice. I'll do it justice this time. For it is impossible. For it. Is impossible. What's impossible? Well, verse 6 tells you it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Notice it says repentance. What will they tell you that it says? They won't say repentance. They will say what? Salvation. A little tricky. Then they'll tell you repentance is the same as salvation. Is it? Is it the same if you're saved? If you're saved, do you repent? You better repent! You better be repentant. All of us, every day. You be sinners. I see it. So will I. So am I. I don't have to go past the mirror. I see the sinner. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance. So you define again to Repentance. And it's not, again, to salvation. And next week, we'll blow this Nickel Ocean pharisaical view of Hebrews 6, four to pieces. And we will define crucify again for themselves. Because if you do not have the right view of salvation, if you have a him who works view, if you have a view that you can lose your salvation, then you are crucifying Christ again. And that is shameful. He says so. And put him to an open shame. So this is obviously a discussion on faith towards God. Do you have faith towards God? That's what he's asking you. Do you believe God? Because if you do, you don't have a works position. And you don't have you in control of your salvation position. Or somebody else in control of your salvation position. You have faith towards God. Notice how that's put. It's sad indeed to see so many that do not see the shame of a works-based salvation and what that says about the blood of Christ and the shame that it brings. Uh, Next week, we'll clean it all up. Hope you come in the snow. Let's rise and be dismissed.